Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining me this Monday, December 11th. Did you have a delightful weekend? Did you do anything particularly fun? Anything that brought you joy? Um, I don't know where you live, but uh, Ray and I hit Northlight Theater. They're doing a murder mystery, Dial M for Murder. I knew the play back, you know, a million years ago, or the movie with Ray Milland and I don't know who else. But I, um, I was really skeptical of how somebody could do it as a play, you know, and... And just have it, uh, all the twists and turns. It was delightful. It was absolutely delightful. And I was one of the press people they invited to be there. What surprised me was not only that the suspense was there, but, uh, it's, it's got quite a bit of humor too, which I didn't, I didn't expect at all. But man, oh man, if you're looking for something to do and you live near Skokie, um, consider that one. So uh, let's see what's going on in the world. Jack Smith, man, he's cutting to the chase, cutting to the chase. He is taking it to the Supreme Court. The United States recognizes that this is an extraordinary request. This is an extraordinary case. That was part of the filing as Jack Smith and um, his prosecutors decided to just they want to move things along. They know that Donald Trump, no matter how many verdicts go against him, that he's still going to continue to appeal. So let's leapfrog over the entire process and get to the end. Let's just take it to the Supreme Court. Otherwise, you're going to go through the appeals process and then time and dragging this out. And Jack Smith wants to get this done. Uh, Right now, if this request is accepted, uh, then the trial in the Jack Smith, this particular Jack Smith case is... um, probably going to take place early next year. (sighs) This is uh, relating to Donald Trump's claims that he is immune from any kind of prosecution when it comes to election obstruction because he was the president and that... Well, if you would actually ask Donald Trump, I'm sure he would say not only did he have immunity while he was president, but being president grants him immunity for life, right? So Jack Smith says, okay, let's cut to the chase. Let's take it to, let's forget about all of this stuff. We're not going to keep going back to court and allowing you to appeal and drag things out. Let's take it right to the Supreme Court. In his filing, Jack Smith argued that Trump's legal claims of immunity are, quote, profoundly mistaken. Profoundly mistaken. 
And he says only the Supreme Court can give us an answer. Will they do it? Well, there is uh, there is a history there. There have been things that were jumped to the Supreme Court, if, especially things deemed of imperative public importance. Uh, Judge Chuckton is the one overseeing the January 6th charges. This is going to be really interesting, not only to see whether or not they say, yeah, we'll hear this and rule on it. And also, it's going to be interesting to see how they rule. Um, I can predict right now that Clarence Thomas and quite possibly Justice Alito will vote any way that they perceive benefits Donald Trump. They don't care about the Constitution. They, they don't care about precedent. Um, they care about their beliefs. And they have shown themselves time and time again to believe that Trump is above all others. We're going to keep an eye on that one. And what is Congress doing? Oh, you might say, well, maybe they're, you know, working really hard to put together an aid package. Maybe they maybe they're doing that. Or maybe they're just working really hard to move forward on their uh, created impeachment process against Joe Biden. They have not been able to find any evidence of high crimes or misdemeanors. Regardless of what Hunter Biden may or may not have done, that ain't on Joe Biden. That is not him. And yet they're moving forward. The one thing the Congress, the Republican led Congress seems to be able to come together on is the idea of impeaching Joe Biden. And we know it's a meaningless impeachment because Republicans, before Biden ever really started being president, they said they, they announced they were, that as soon as he took office, they were going to impeach him. And why? Well, because, the, because Trump got impeached. You impeached Trump, so we're going to impeach Biden. Completely demeaning and degrading what is supposed to be a very serious procedure. Over the weekend, Mitt Romney was um, on, you know, the Sunday morning talk shows with Kristen Welker. And uh, she asked him about impeachment. This is what he said. Listen to this. Have you seen any evidence that President Biden has committed high crimes and misdemeanors? No, I, I, I don't uh, see any evidence of that at all. Uh, I think before you begin an impeachment inquiry, you ought to have some evidence, some inclination uh, that there's been wrongdoing. And so far, there's nothing of that nature that's been provided. So are you opposed to the impeachment inquiry? Well, if I were in the House, I'd vote against it, unless they were able to bring forward uh, uh, evidence that suggests that there, there were a high crime or misdemeanor that had been uh, committed. But so far, that hasn't been the case. Look, look fortunately, 
for most people, we're not responsible for the misdeeds of our kids and grandkids and great grandkids. Nothing in my family I'm embarrassed about. But but uh, President Trump's excuse me, President Biden's son, Hunter, is obviously been a very unsavory person and has had some extremely uh, damaging personal uh, uh, foibles, including a drug habit and so forth. Uh, that's not President Biden. And uh, and we're not going to impeach someone because of the sins of their kids. What an interesting perspective, of course, now that he's not running for reelection, he really can say pretty much anything with uh, worry about retribution. <sighs> anyway, there's other things to talk about. There's some stuff going on with abortion. And, um, God, I'm trying to think of, is there any good news? There might be some good news that I can bring, too. And it's about actually something that you can do, or maybe you can get as a holiday present for somebody. So <laughs> we're going to come back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. You know, there's a lot going on in Texas. There was a woman in Texas, a 26-year-old woman <clears throat> who had a miscarriage and um, was for a time charged with a felony in the death of her fetus. They have since reversed that decision because... Um, They've decided, you know, well, she really didn't do anything to bring about the miscarriage. It just it just happened. But the fact that she was even charged for a time is where things stand in Texas. You may have heard about the other woman, Kate Cox. She's the mother of two pregnant with her third and the fetus is not viable. It has a fatal illness. And she wants to have more kids. And doctors have told her that if she carries this fetus to term or until it dies inside her, that it is possible that her ability to have children will be damaged forever. If not, that door closed entirely. She went to court to try to get an abortion. A judge ruled in her favor saying, you know, this is not a woman who wants to lose this child. This woman has children. She wants more children. And if she carries, doctors have told her, if she continues to carry this fetus, her ability to have children could be impaired. And we've seen that before. When these laws first started being put into effect, she wouldn't be the first one. Because in, in at least one case, there was a woman who was in the process of miscarrying, and the doctor said they couldn't do any kind of procedure to remove the fetus until the woman was septic. When you're septic, that means you ha your body is raging with infection. So they waited until she was septic, because then her life was in danger, and then a different set of rules applied, and then they did what they needed to do, and guess what? She's sterile. So it is a very real possibility in a situation like this that a woman can lose her ability to have children altogether. So she petitioned the court. The court granted her request. That should have been the end of it. But Texas Attorney General 
a man who should be in jail because he's a crook, the man whose many of his staff quit because they told people he was taking bribes, but um, the man who the Texas um, legislative bodies decided to keep around, Ken Paxton, went to the Supreme Court of Texas and said, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. This woman cannot have an abortion. You know, if you look up really horrible human being in the dictionary, I think there's an excellent chance that you'll see Ken Paxton's picture. You know, all he had to do was nothing. All he had to do was leave it alone. You think Ken Paxton cares a whit about this woman? No, I don't. You think that this isn't Ken Paxton's way to attack anybody who he perceives as liberal or progressive? You betcha. You betcha. Retribution and revenge. That's what it's all about. Retribution and revenge. Ken Paxton, a very tiny human being. One um, sound clip that kind of went viral over the weekend. Um, Ohio senator, and I say that <clears throat> reluctantly, Ohio Senator uh, J.D. Vance was being interviewed by Jake Tapper on CNN and um, tried to convince everybody in the CNN audience that, you know, abortion is really not. That's really not something Republicans really care about. They're not really, that's not a, that's not a big deal to Republicans. Until uh, Jake Tapper interrupted him. Make sure you listen to the end of this. Listen to this. I want to protect as many unborn babies as possible. I also think we have to win the trust back of the American people. And one of the ways to do that is to be the truly pro-family party. I think we are. We've got to carry that message forward and actually enact some public policy to that effect. Does, is birth control part of that policy, uh, uh, empowering women to be able to make those decisions before they get pregnant? Look, obviously people need to be able to make those decisions. I don't think that I know any Republican, at least not a Republican with a brain that's trying to take those rights away from people. Uh, but I think it goes deeper than that. I mean, I could provide a list for you if you wanted. Well, OK. Um, I could provide a list for you. Well, there are no Republicans I've talked to who feel I could give you a list. Um, and you know, you know what? Maybe uh, you're not um, y- uh, young enough to understand social media, but Mr. Vance, I bet there are people on your staff who could find these same Republicans on all the different public statements they've made. Liar, liar, pence on fire. <sighs> hey, um, today at <coughs> today, excuse me. Why am I coughing at you? I apologize. Today at 4.30, we have our Ask an Attorney segment with Tony Moray. He's going to be back here. Some of the questions and comments. Uh, when we had him here last time, we got a flurry of questions and comments like in the last two minutes of the segment. And so we couldn't get to all of them. So I, um, I made uh, notes on what people were asking So uh, we're going to start with that. But remember, the whole time I'm on the air, you can always call, you can shoot me a text. 
you know, um, the same number that uh, we use for calling in and talking on the radio is um, the number you can text us with. You just go to that little text icon on your phone and you um, put in 773-763-9278 and you can shoot me a text directly. I have the system loaded and it is up and running. So uh, Tony Murray going to be here at 4.30 to answer your legal questions. He's an expert on estates, on wills, on um, how to make sure that you don't leave loved ones with a big mess. Um, and so we've got that. But before, before you use your dialing finger to shoot me a text, I want you to use your dialing finger. For another reason, for the next 10 days, 10 days, we are giving away what could be the perfect holiday gift. Starting today and running through Friday, December 22nd, we are giving away two tickets to the live performance that Stephanie Miller, Stephanie Miller and friends are going to be doing here when the Democratic National Convention takes place. Yeah, she's going to be at the Vic Theater. It's going to be an eight o'clock show. It's going to be August 17th. That's a Saturday. And yes, you can go to sexyliberal.com slash tour and buy tickets of your own. But we're going to give away two tickets every day from now um, to the end of next week. And we're doing it now, even though the show's in August. So if you want to grab a couple of tickets to give uh, to someone you know and love for the holidays, you can do that. Okay, uh, Paul, let's go with, let's make it easy. The second caller at 773 that's 773-763-WCPT. She's going to be at the Vic Theater for an 8 o'clock show on Saturday, August 17th. The Sexy Liberal Comedy Show will be live and in person here in Chicago, where the focus of politics is going to be as Chicago hosts the Democratic National Convention. Remember, all of our contests are open to you as long as you're 18 years of age or older, as long as you live in the greater Chicagoland, northwest Indiana area, one entry per person, one winner per household, void where prohibited by law. Listeners may only win or qualify to win once every 30 days. Complete rules are available on our website, wcpt820.com. Uh, by clicking on the contest tab. Paul Shavari is waiting to talk to you, and you need two free tickets to see Stephanie Miller. Okay, we got the, um, we got the Tony Moray, um, call in. You ready on that? We've got the Stephanie Miller call in. You ready on that? Uh, and uh, here's what today looks like. Like I said, Tony Moray is going to be here at 4.30. From 3.30 on, we're going to be talking to our one of our favorite political science professors, William Muck, 
uh, from uh, North Central College in Naperville. You may have heard Donald Trump uh, talking about being a dictator. Sean Hannity asked him if he was reelected, would he be a dictator? And he said, um, well, maybe just on day one. Ha, 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 Yeah, I don't really think it's funny either. Um, there's really on, on another topic, because in a, in a couple of minutes, we're going to be talking to a Mideast expert. Things are um, really throughout the Middle East. I mean, it isn't just Gaza anymore. Um, there have been... There have been skirmishes with Hezbollah. There have been um, there has been some middle military action along the border with Lebanon. Uh, Israel has said they believe that at least half of the mid-level Hamas fighters have been taken out. You've also they've been showing over the weekend. Pictures of men laying on the ground with their hands bound, um, most of whom are in their underwear. These are Palestinians who have either been taken into custody by the Israeli Defense Forces or, according to Israel, they are Hamas members who have surrendered. Um, there was, the military did not release these pictures. Uh, they, and as a matter of fact, when news agencies went to the Israeli military and asked for these photographs, the military said no. But uh, some of the pictures show big piles of guns. Hamas has put out a statement saying that they're just normal, everyday Palestinians. These are not Hamas fighters. Hamas fighters would never, ever, ever surrender. As usual, two different stories. But the one thing that does support the Israeli version of events, that they are people who have surrendered. Though reporters are saying that since Israel told people to, you know, vacate this area, that any man they find, they consider a suspected Hamas member. But after it has been reported that after these people have been interviewed, some of the men have been released if it is felt that they were taken And they did not turn out to be Hamas. Hamas, of course, says nobody would ever surrender. Israel seems to be taking the position that until they they um, capture or kill the leader of Hamas, a man by the name of Sinwar, that this that this is going to continue. A U.N. resolution calling for a ceasefire was shot down by the United States. It is, um, it's a mess and it's getting messier. We're going to be talking about that when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There is every possibility that the uh, House of Representatives could uh, decide to go on their holiday break without approving any kind of an aid package, not just aid to Ukraine, but also aid to Israel. Um, 
It just doesn't seem to be a topic that they really want to want to tackle. We'll see. You know, maybe it'll change. We're joined now by Laura Rodriguez, who's vice president of government affairs at the Center for American Progress and uh, is somebody who has been spending some time learning about um, these supplemental funding requests and uh, maybe can explain it to us what's at stake and, and what the considerations are. Laurel, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. I, I hope I can help. <laughs> yes, I hope you can help, too. Um, let's start with the basics. Is I'm confused because I know Mike Johnson said he wanted to just do a package for Israel. President Biden wants this package that's got Israel and Ukraine. Then I believe there's also a funding request for Taiwan. Where do things stand right now? What's happening? Well, Joan, we've got dueling packages uh, on all sorts of different fronts. Um, Mike Johnson uh, paired his Israel-only funding bill with cuts to the IRS funding that passed last year uh, with the Inflation Reduction Act, which basically made it dead on arrival in the Senate. I mean, it, it made no sense. Uh, nothing has ever, for, for um, emergency funding, they don't usually do pay-fors. Uh, but it's also really confusing because it's not a pay-for. It actually uh, it makes the deficit bigger when you take money away from the IRS because they're the folks who are collecting the taxes. So he really did a strange thing when he did that. Nobody really understood it. Because the fact was- of the matter is... Do you think it was just a meaningless gesture to appease the ultra far right? Because even I understand that cutting the IRS budget is uh, it really is a is a huge cut to the amount of money the government collects. And even I understand, you know, that what the Senate, which has been very clear about what they will and won't support. So why put together a bill that, you know, has no chance. I can't, uh, unless you're just trying to, you know, play to the cheap seats, I don't get it. Yeah. And and, and that's exactly what he's doing. Uh, and except even with some of the, the right flank, he really made a big mistake with that because had he just put a clean Israel-only bill there, it would have passed the Senate. It would have been very difficult for the Senate to not pass that. So it's, it, it, it was a nonsensical move that even his own Republican Party, many of them did not understand it and were very unhappy about it. What we're seeing in the House, especially, is this lack of experience from uh, the new speaker. And he, it's really showing that he does not know how to navigate true legislating. He now has so I, I won't get I, I was about to go into the National Defense Authorization Act, but let's let's stick to the, the supplemental package for a second. So then on the Senate side, we're, we're seeing uh, a possible vote this week. Uh, the leader, Schumer, put a package uh, very close to what the White House requested uh, for Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan and border security money. Uh, Altogether, 
So we'll see how that goes. It's going to be an interesting vote, um, considering that the leader has allowed for them to put in amendments, should they want it, uh, the Republicans. Uh, So we'll see if they're really serious about passing something or not on the Senate side. And if they do, it might it might put the House in a tough position where the speaker maybe has to put that on the floor. It's very hard to see a path right now, however. One of the things Mike Johnson said shortly after he rose to fame was that, you know, part of the reason why he wanted to do that temporary budget bill, get that out of the way, is because he was really afraid that he would sort of be outmaneuvered by the Senate. And yet when it comes to this funding, he seems to have opened the door to the Senate and said, yeah, come on in and outmaneuver me on this one. Uh, do they not talk to one another? I'm very curious because, it, you know, did nobody say to Mike Johnson, what the heck are you doing here? Really hard to tell. since You know, as you may remember, when he was elected speaker, many of the House, uh, excuse me, the Senate Republicans didn't know who he was. And they were being asked, like, have, you know, what do you think of the new speaker, Mike Johnson? And Susan Collins answered, I'm going to have to Google him. I don't know much about the guy. <laughs> um, so I am at, they are still getting to know each other, Joan. I think that's <laughs> happening. Um, and it's interesting. I will say Mike Johnson seems to, because of his lack of experience, he, it seems he is going to get outmaneuvered by the Senate time and time again. When you look at Ukraine, he was very anti-Ukraine funding before he became speaker. He's now changed his tune. He's got um, access to uh, more intelligence as the speaker. And so it seems that uh, he may, you know, be moving towards a little more, you know, central uh, center position there. But that being said, I don't think he can bring the rest of his folks with him. And so we've got a problem when they are basically holding funding for an ally hostage very similar to what Trump did to Ukraine five years ago, as we all know. Um, and they are now holding it hostage openly for extreme, extreme changes in immigration and asylum policy. So there's just no other way to put it. They are insisting on nothing but what they call their, their bills, HR2. Um, and it's just extreme policies, cutting down on asylum um, possibilities and paths uh, for legal migration, which is just going to exacerbate the problem. I understand that even Mitch McConnell, who has been a vocal supporter of Ukraine, has said that, you know, they also want to see um, money for border security in in this new package. And it seems like, as you said, Chuck Schumer acknowledges that and they have put some things in um, as far as, you know, I mean, I know what the, the House of Representatives wants some really radical changes. Are those same migration radical policies echoed in the Senate or is the Senate a little more re- moderate on that? They are, they are more moderate on that. Um, what the Senate is putting forth is much closer to what the White House request was. The White House, remember, put border um, 
a border request in with all of this as well. And so this is much closer to what the White House requested. And it's more about, again, addressing the real issue. I think everyone can agree we have an issue at the border. It's whatever is happening right now is not working. Um, and so there's not a member, I don't think, on either side of the aisle who's not willing to have the discussion about what we can do to um, make the situation at the border better and more humane. Um, but th- that's just not what Republicans are interested in in the House. Mm-hmm. I, one thing puzzles me. By, by all accounts, Mike Johnson is really in a position of power in the House of Representatives because, you know, obviously the far right ousted Kevin McCarthy and Mike Johnson is pretty far right. If they oust him as well, it's pretty much a certainty that somebody more moderate than Mike Johnson will get the job. So it, it would seem that, you know, Mike Johnson right now is bulletproof, which is another reason why I can't understand why he doesn't take some risks, why he doesn't consult with the Senate and say, how can we get this stuff done? Is Again, would you put this to his inexperience? Yes, but I also don't think I don't necessarily agree that he's bulletproof because um, this this caucus, the House Republican caucus, has demonstrated time and again that there's very little logic to what they're trying to do. They're not interested in governing. They are interested in in political points. And that's what a minority party does a lot. Um, Because that's, you know, in the House, when you're in the minority, it's very difficult to get legislation passed. And so that's what that's what minorities do. They just, you know, they throw political bombs uh, and they, they fight everything and they say no to everything. They seem to still think that they're in the minority and they're not interested in governing. So would they do it for a political, it seems like we are just watching political theater over and over again. So it's possible that they gave Mike Johnson a pass this first time with this, um, this uh, CR that's, well, half of it ends in uh, end of January or mid-January and the other half in the beginning of February, that they gave him that one pass, basically say, you got this this one time, but we're not doing that again. We're not giving you another CR, and we're not letting you kind of bully us into voting for something that we don't want. That's not extreme cuts. And so we're we're just not dealing with, Good faith negotiators. And that's maybe the nicest way I can put it. <laughs> uh, if you had to look into your crystal ball, do you think we're headed for um, do you think we're headed for no agreement and chaos and funding running out? I mean, they got already that stern warning from the Office of Management and mm-hmm. Budget that, hey, dudes, you got like till the end of December and then there's nothing for Ukraine. Nada, nothing. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it seems like we're it seems like we're going 70 miles an hour and there's a brick wall ahead of us, Laura. Could I, uh, do you see any 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 archway in that brick wall for us to scoot through? I I tend to believe that you're right, that we are running right into it. Um, and because we have a set of players that don't seem to understand the truly understand the consequences of it. 
we might just slam right into it. That being said, I'm hopeful that this week, now that President Zelensky has decided to come in person mm-hmm. to Washington, and, you know, he, he went and he he spoke with folks virtually last week, and I, he thought that didn't work. So I think, you know, this is his Hail Mary. And I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe there's a, a small chance, a small sliver of a chance that he can get the Senate to do something this week um, with his pleas, his in-person pleas. And then again, like I said, you know, box the house in. Um, so there is, I would say the archway is low. Mm. Um, very, very low. Like you have to limbo, but, um, but it's there. And if there is a tiny, I think there's always hope um, until, you know, until they actually leave town, which looks like they're pretty dead set on doing that at the end of this week. I'm speaking with Laura Rodriguez, who's vice president of government affairs at the Center for American Progress. We are talking about the funding that we may or may not see for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan. We're going to take a break and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. Laura Rodriguez is vice president of government affairs at the Center for American Progress. And we are talking about uh, this effort being made to fund some of our allies and how it is in in deep trouble. And Laura, I understand that people like you and me, you know, we eat this stuff for breakfast and we you know read everything we can get our hands on. Um, but I think for the average person, it's hard to wade through some of this. And also, it doesn't help that there is a lot of misinformation being put out. I talked to a very intelligent, very good friend over the weekend. And, you know, don't ask me how, but the subject of funding for Ukraine came up. And he said, you know, you know, I just we have so many needs here in this country. You know, that money could be. And I was like, the money set aside for Ukraine is part of the defense budget. If we don't send that money to Ukraine, that money isn't going to be used to fund social programs and, you know, make the lives better and feed people. That money's going to go back to the defense budget. And, you know, I mean, are we it's hard it's hard to get people to put pressure on their lawmakers when they, when they're so confused about what's what. How do we how do we wade through that? Yeah, I think we started to hear um, the White House this week try to make some connections. I think we've always talked about this in the form of, you know, we are the power for good. We are defending democracy. We're helping Ukraine defend democracy. But that always sounds and feels, I think, quite theoretical, and it's really far away. Um, but I think, you know, on that side, there are folks that really don't get it, that if Putin wins and takes over chunks of Ukraine, there's no stopping him mm-hmm. from going further. And then we are going to be embroiled in a full-fledged, full-on war. And, um, you know, we've I think we've made those arguments, and... I think they held at first and a lot of people understood it, but it has faded. And I think this week the White House started to make um, an argument that I thought was could be helpful if they if it breaks through. And that's always the, um, 
the question because as you said, there's so much misinformation out there. But the the money that is it's actually being pumped into our economy because what we're doing is we're refilling our our coffers with work. They they need to get ammunition, and so this money is going to places in the United States to manufacture weapons and ammunition because everything that we send over there has to be ref, uh, refilled basically for us. Uh, and so it's actually helpful to our own economy when we're doing this. Um, this is not, this is not something that like, it just, it just we don't send claims of cash over to Ukraine. This is money that's going to our manufacturing companies in order to help Ukraine fight this war against a tyrant. You know, I don't think Fox News uh, probably picked it up. <laughs> but a few months ago, Mitch McConnell stood in front of a microphone and he was like, yeah, I support Ukraine. Like, don't you guys get it? Like, we send our old stuff over there and then we use this money to make new stuff. So we're basically not only supporting an ally, we're also upgrading all of our stuff. And I and yep. I thought to myself, you know, Mitch McConnell... Uh, is not somebody that I would go like, yay, calling it like it is, but he did. And it didn't seem to, even that didn't seem to make much of an impact. Yeah. And, and to your point before, it's the misinformation and the fact that, you know, it, news media has to decide that they want to amplify that message. And we, we're not getting that, I think, from a lot of places because it, it's not sexy. And it's, you know, it's nuanced and it's hard. It's a hard communication to make and it's a hard connection to make for the everyday person and why they should care about Ukraine and why they why it's good for us. It's actually good for us on two fronts. Right. Economically and for democracy. But it's a it's a tough it's it's they're tough dots to connect for folks. So it just is a matter, I think, of just continuing to try to beat the drum and break through. And and Mitch McConnell, God help me, well, you know, I'm like quoting Mitch McConnell like he, you know, <laughs> like he's somebody I admire. He was also talking about and when you look at Ukraine, you know, Putin is an enemy of our country. There's another country that's tying him up and taking him on. And all we have to do is like send them Weapons. We don't have to fight. You know, we don't have any mm-hmm. boots on the ground. The risk to us is very low. And he's like, win, win, win. You know, I mean, why does nobody else see this? That's correct. And again, if they don't, if they don't win, it will almost certainly lead to boots on the ground for us at some point. Yes, very that's what I don't understand that people don't understand. Um. Mm-hmm. You know, well, you started to talk about the National Defense Authorization Act before I so rudely interrupted you. Uh, let's let's go back to that, if you would. So, what do you think the chances are of uh, of getting that one squared away? You know, it, it, it's never not passed. <laughs> uh, I think in sixty something years. So, you know, it's it's due uh, for not passing. No, I I, I think there's probably more work going on behind the scenes on that one. Um, and it's less broth than the supplemental. I think where we're going to get a little bit of drama is, and this is the reason I was talking about it or thinking about it before is because 
it's just another example of Mike Johnson's lack of leadership. Um, it's with the FISA reauthorization. And as you know, it's a pretty controversial program. Uh, folks don't love it, but um, our intel communities do and our um, and our law enforcement communities do. So it, it's a tough issue. And Mike Johnson uh, at first said, you know, he wasn't going to put it into the NDAA. He wasn't going to let it ride there. Then he said, no, I am going to let it ride there. And it's going to be just a partial reauthorization until April. And then this week, they announced that they're going to put two different bills from two different members, uh, two different versions of a FISA reauthorization to vote on and like kind of see which one comes out. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a really messy issue. Um, and he, they've made it messier because they don't know what they're doing. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that. I think there's probably more chance of the NDA passing than the supplemental. Really? I wouldn't yeah. have thought we would, you know, I, I know there's partisan politics and, you know, even um, Tom Cotton, who apparently led the rebellion that caused a lot of people to walk out of a of a secure classified briefing on Ukraine. But supposedly at least one of the Republican senators asked, I don't know, Chuck Schumer or somebody, what is, by the way, just by the way, what is that drop dead date by which we have to pull the trigger or or everything stops for Ukraine? Just, you know, just as an informational thing, give me like the last possible second, you know, we can drag this out to which when I heard that gave me a tiny little bit of hope that at least, you know, the Senate, this is their bargaining chip. You know, they, as one of them said, um, you know, like, sorry to hold Ukraine hostage, but we want changes at the border. And right now this is like the only bargaining chip we've got. So maybe they won't let it happen, Laura. She said depressed, but hopeful. <laughs> I mean, I, and like I said, I think that there's a possibility. I, everything with this in this year has been chaos and disorder from the very beginning when it took, was it 20 tries? No, not quite 20 tries. Was it 15 for 15 McCarthy? McCarthy. Get, 15, yeah, I couldn't remember if it was 15 or 20. So 15 tries. So it gave you, I mean, we had no idea, but we had an inkling that, yeah, this is what we were going to be seeing. Um, and, it, and it's proven, unfortunately, correct, that there's, it's just pure chaos, lack of legislative ability, lack of leadership at the top. Um, I mean, you saw another excellent example of this is when uh, the George Sanchez vote came up, right? So George Sanchez, uh, you know, Johnson's like, I'm going to let the vote happen. He hadn't said, you know, what position to take. He wasn't going to whip one way or the other. And then at the very last moment, he and Stefanik and Emma decided they were going to vote against expelling him, probably doing the math of how their majority is shrinking so quickly. Um, and it mattered. It didn't matter at all. Like, they just, they're not, that leadership doesn't have a following. The caucus is so divided, they can't uh, stick together, which means they can't govern. And on the other hand, you have Democrats who are sticking together on everything, 99.9% um, .9 of things. And, you know, 
and showing them how it's done. There was hope for a time that maybe the more, I was going to say more moderate Republicans, but maybe I should just say less far left or less far right Republicans, that they might just get sick of being led around by their more radical members and that they would um, secretly make some plans with Democrats to be able to pass things. There was for a time there was speculation mm-hmm. that that was a very real possibility, but it it certainly hasn't happened yet. Is is that idea dead, do you think? Uh Maybe I think we'll I think another we'll see again today and not today, sorry, this week when they uh, take the official vote uh, to open the impeachment inquiry on President Biden with zero evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, those those 18 Republicans that are in Biden districts, it, it's going to be very telling. And right now it's looking like they're going to vote for opening the inquiry. So I think. I don't know that it's dead, but it's looking like it's on life support. Um, and certainly, yes, that was a uh, an idea that a lot of folks were hopeful for, but it's not. It does not seem to be panning out. Now, next year, I think their majority is going to be down to three or two, two or three members. So he's not going to be able to lose any votes. It's just, I think we're just in for a lot more chaos next year. Oh, unfortunately, that's good to know. Laura Rodriguez, (laughs) Vice President of Government Affairs at the Center for American Progress and our official chaos reporter. Laura, thank you so much (laughs) for being here. I'm sure we'll be talking again. Really fun to talk to you, Joan. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. We are going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. We talk a lot about um, energy, solar energy, wind energy, getting away from fossil fuels. And um, I know that when it comes to at least the electric vehicle portion of that, there's a lot of confusion, uh, and and uh, frankly, I'm as confused as as everybody else about this. As to is it really is it really a boon? You know, um, because there've been there's been so much talk about. Well, you know, you you think you're doing so great because you have an electric car, but in the manufacture of the batteries and all this other stuff, you know, it uses. Um, you know, requires finding all these rare earth minerals and, and, you know, that's really net bad for the environment, not good for the environment. And then I would read something else that say, oh, no, that's not really true. So I think that there's a lot of confusion and a lot of misinformation as we try to move into a clean energy future. Electric vehicles, are they, are they, are they helping or, or are they hurting? Uh, we asked um, somebody who works at GM, the director of GM Energy, Derek Sequera, to join us and um, and give us some answers here. Derek, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Joan. Happy to be here. Uh, I drive an electric vehicle, and um, I like to think that I'm doing something good. For the environment, you know, I read, what is it, Dan Neal, who does all of the, 
uh, car writing for the Wall Street Journal every Saturday. And like a year ago, you know, he still writes on all the real fancy Ferraris and things. But like a year ago, he said, guys, the internal combustion engine is as good as gone. It may not happen tomorrow, may not happen next year or five years from now. But I'm telling you, electric vehicles, that's where the future is. These um, com- internal combustion engines, they are going to be antiques. They're going to be relics. So clearly, there's a lot of people who believe in these. But first, you know, Derek, let's talk about the batteries. You know, oh, well, you know, in, in just creating the batteries creates so much toxic waste that it's, you know, bad for the environment. Are there different kinds of batteries? Are some better than others? Is this true or not? Well, hey, thanks for the question. And first of <laughs> all, thank you for for driving an electric vehicle, because I think uh, what you probably see and what others don't see is once you get into an electric vehicle, you will be you will fall in love quickly with the drive, the quietness, the just the great features in an EV, but that's, that's just the start. Let's get back to your question on batteries. Batteries are everywhere. Batteries are in our consumer electronics. They've been around forever. And battery technology, quite frankly, is continuously evolving, uh, you know, from some of the first electric vehicles that were out there to the more modern uh, portfolio items we have now here at GM in our Altium platform. And we're continuing to get better when it comes to manufacturing batteries, becoming more efficient, being able to supply more or secure more of the supply chain to ensure that we're going after more sustainable sources as we work through manufacturing batteries. So it's an ever improving um, process. And we believe that the battery manufacturing piece what may have, you know, a little more processing than parts of an internal combustion engine vehicle. But as soon as you put it all together and you drive an electric vehicle off of a dealer's lot, you are already winning because you are not emitting tailpipe emissions. And over the course of a life, that vehicle the tailpipe emissions being avoided in an electric vehicle are huge and are going to more than offset whatever minor increase in carbon there was manufacturing that battery. So what we like to do is really focus on the electric vehicle reducing, eliminating tailpipe emissions and getting us to that zero emissions future that we're looking for. I read somewhere that there is... um there is research being done on a different kind of battery. And I may not know what I'm talking about here, but I, I vaguely remember uh, them referring to it maybe as a sodium battery, you know, that would require no, you know, um, obscure chemicals uh, and rare earth minerals uh, to, to work. Do, what, what am I talking about here, Derek? Yeah, I think where where you're, where you're going is the continuously evolving technology arms race when it comes to batteries and trying to build out more uh, sustainable, efficient technologies. This is something that I think everyone is working on. And what we want to do is get to a point where 
batteries just end up becoming part of a commodity that go into a vehicle and are the most efficient piece possible. Uh, we don't typically get into, you know, chemistries and whatnot, but let me tell you, the technology is advancing very quickly. Interesting. Interesting. You know, um, my partner still has uh, an, uh, an, well, it's a really old Jeep. So, of course, it's an internal combustion engine. And when I drive his car, I hate the fact that the first thing I have to do is, oh, my God, do I have enough gas? Um, you know, and, and do I have to add an extra 10, 15 minutes to my trip so that I can get more gas? And also, and this is going to sound, you know, really snooty on my part. When you get used to driving an electric vehicle, I know you were talking about the tailpipe emissions. You get really sensitive to the smell that gas cars put out. Like, oh my God, this car stinks. Oh yeah. The smell, the noise, uh, you know, for me. I got to get up very early, you know, out of the house. Kids are sleeping. Cold out here in Southeast Michigan, like I'm sure it is in Chicago. And I like to get that remote start going with an electric vehicle. I don't wake the house up, but I'm sure when you would, when you fire up that truck or Jeep, yeah, you're going to, it's going to be pretty loud and people are going to hear it. So noise, emissions, those are just some of the things that moving to an EV, you don't have to worry about. But I also want to comment on the uh, the point you made previously. I I don't know if any gas powered vehicles that I can take home and wake up and they're magically full of gas again. <laughs> but an electric vehicle, that's that's a reality. Mm-hmm. I can bring it home, and if I'm set up with reliable home charging, I have the ability to recharge overnight. You know, the average American commutes something like 40 miles round trip. And if we get you outfitted with the right home charging solution for the vehicle that you have, you won't have to worry about that because you'll be topped off full and ready to go. Um, I've had examples where I've been on long road trips. I've avoided charging in public, got home with about 10% state of charge had to go somewhere early in the morning. It wasn't, wasn't that far away. So I didn't even charge to a complete uh, full battery, but it was enough to get me where I needed, come back. And then I continued to charge through the day. These are the things that you just, you'll adjust in your life as you move from a gas vehicle where you got to go fill up. You got to spend that extra 10, 15 minutes going out of your way to a gas station, but don't need to worry about in an electric vehicle. Home charging is key. We want to make sure that all EV drivers understand the importance of home charging. Also, I didn't realize that some people believe this. Some people think that you uh, can't drive an electric vehicle when it's raining or take an electric vehicle through a car wash. I'm not quite sure where that myth comes from. I mean, I can attest to the fact that it's not true, but why do people think that's dangerous? Yeah, I, I don't know why either. It's a myth that we easily debunk. Our vehicles are built to the highest safety standards out there. And, you know, we, we ensure that they're built to quality and we're creating programs to educate customers, educate dealers, our dealer technicians, and even first responders that if you do have any concerns about your vehicle and weather, 
We want to put them to rest by showing you that our vehicles are safe. And in the event of an emergency, we've got the appropriate procedures to make sure that everyone will be okay. So for us, it's super important to make sure that we are setting the record straight when it comes to myths such as that one. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking to Derek Sequera, who is the director of energy at GM. When we come back, we're going to continue to talk about um, clean energy and electric vehicles right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And uh, I am joined by Derek Sequera, who uh, works for GM. He's the director of energy. We are talking about electric vehicles. There was, uh, Derek, there was an article in Forbes recently that um, that the headline was, Repairing an electric vehicle could cost more than gasoline cars, a new kind of sticker shock. Now, if you read the whole article, they kind of come to the conclusion that right now there really aren't a lot of electric vehicles to have a, a an overall comparison with. And also a lot of the vehicles looked at were Teslas, which tend to be more expensive But there has been a lot of reporting on this idea that somehow if you get into a collision, your bill to repair your car is going to be higher than it is for a gas car. What will what will it take to change that? Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, Electric vehicles uh, have definitely come up over time. But I'd say overall, electric vehicles are newer technology. They've got uh, a lot more uh, functions to them. When you're comparing them to stats that are likely tied to a huge car park of gas vehicles that are older in age, some have been around for a long time, you've got a huge independent aftermarket and, you know, scrap parts. So I think it's an unfair comparison. It's one of those where I think we'll have to wait over the course of time to see how uh, electric vehicles evolve, especially as m- more OEMs come out with newer vehicles and you're not just focused on a single brand, but now there are multiple brands out there. I know uh, here at uh, GM, we do an amazing job of educating our dealers and technicians on the most efficient processes when it comes to repairing. Uh, so, you know, we want to get some data behind us and probably, you know, it's a great fact to look at a couple of years down the line once there's uh, more data in the pipeline. Well, speaking about, I know this is an evolving industry, but there's also been reporting recently that so many of the electric vehicles are luxury vehicles or high-end vehicles. Like, where is that Middle of the road price point that that as a matter of fact, one article I read said um, sta- sales were not keeping pace with predictions that were made, you know, as to how the sales would increase because the creation of these middle price point cars seems to be slower than was originally expected. Um, where are those uh, more affordable electric cars? Hey, uh, so electric vehicles are continuing to grow in popularity. If you look at the month over month uh, EV percentage of total sales, it's continuing to climb here in the United States. And at GM, we're committed to having an electric vehicle for everyone. 
building out a portfolio that is affordable from vehicles such as the Bolt, moving up to the middle size Blazer EV, or if you need a truck, we've got the Silverado EV, but then also have offerings for luxury as well through our Cadillac portfolio. And next year, we'll also be adding the Equinox EV to that mix, which will be one of those vehicles that will be very attractive to the mainstream buyer. And what we're trying to do is just educate the customer base that we've got that EV for everyone. So if you were sitting on the sidelines thinking, oh, you know, maybe a vehicle may have been too expensive or a vehicle may have been too small for me, I think now we've got a lot of options all the way from compact to midsize SUV all the way through a truck at a price point for everybody. Uh, Another one of the myths that I want to ask you to talk about is uh, some people say that uh, if you get into an accident, uh, it's more dangerous if you're in an electric vehicle, that um, it's more dangerous not only for you, but for the first responders. I guess the fear is of fire or explosion or the batteries doing something uh, that they shouldn't otherwise be doing. Has the uh, data borne that out? Yeah, I think we have continued to state that the electric vehicles are built to the highest safety standards here at General Motors. And we are continuing to build out programs for our dealers, our service technicians, and first responders to make sure that they feel comfortable uh, repairing or responding to any uh, vehicles in trouble. So, you know, just another part of the, the education well, do campaign. Do first responders that we are need to have some to kind of special training? Is there something. If you're in a, um, I've only ever been with my car in a in a little fender bender, and it was it was no big deal. I've never been in a in a big accident. You know, is there an uh, an increased danger of fire? Do, do firefighters have to uh, do um, take certain actions if it's an EV? No, I think firefighters just need to be cognizant of like the the risks, right? So it's just really making sure that they understand how to handle electric vehicles more appropriately. But I think the risk levels are likely the same as you would see on any other vehicle that would be in that type of trouble. So there's no extra danger of fire, even though we've all seen the reports that, um, I read oh, 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 like a year ago, somebody wrote an article said, oh, you know, if you've got a Tesla, don't park it in your garage because the thing could just start on fire by itself and take the whole garage with it. Have we gotten past that? See, I, I think more uh, articles, stories like that continue to proliferate through the social media channels, which is why we're we're spending time talking about electric vehicle education and trying to debunk myths. You know, our focus really is to try and get the story straight up front because there are customers out there who might be reading this, believing things. So what we want to do is bring it back. And we've developed tools such as EV Live, which is our EV education tool uh, available for free. And all you have to do is go on to evlive.gm.com and you can reach out to an EV specialist that will help you answer questions about EV basics, EV uh, propulsion, or maybe 
other things that might be on your mind. Those are really what we want to make sure we're getting across to customers very early on to educate them as soon as possible and help debunk a lot of these myths that are out there. Are we ever going to reach the point where every car uses the exact same um, sort of configuration to charge? Uh, I know with my car, I was out in Arizona and um, pulled up to a charging station in a mall parking lot and discovered that it was it wouldn't fit with my car. The It seems like there's an awful lot of uh, at least three that I know of different kinds of configurations for chargers. Do you see at some point in the future there being just one or do you think it's going to be like there's going to be one that GM gets behind and one that Tesla gets behind? Yeah, so I totally feel your pain. And there are three standards out here in North America, which to us, you know, we see that as a barrier to a great charging experience. And just recently, you know, we announced that we're going to be moving over to the North American charging standard, uh, becoming native on our vehicles uh, in a couple of years. But what that does is, by us signing up to do that, we now open up more public charging for our customers. So if you take the 164,000 chargers that are currently available to GM customers within their My Chevrolet, their My Cadillac app, you now tack on these extra um, superchargers and you're starting to grow that network and give everyone a lot more confidence that when I'm out in public, when I'm out in Arizona, I can find a charging connection that fits with my vehicle and gives me more choice and hopefully a better experience. Yeah. And also, if I could put in a request, Derek, I want if you're if you're like going cross country or even cross state and you're on like, you know, these the the turnpike or, you know, these big uh, national roads. I want chargers where there's the Dairy Queen. Okay, I want to just pull off to the ramp. I want to plug my car in. I want to go get a hamburger and a milkshake and then come back out. But at least as far as now, uh, I've, they're just, there doesn't seem to be a big move to put chargers where you would think they would be the most useful. I mean, you, there's one by my post office now. The, you know, there used to be a charger in the parking lot of my Target. You know, but when I was going cross country, I had to look for them. Why is that? Joan, we hear you. There are (laughs) chargers out there in some obscure locations. But what we are doing is listening to EV drivers like you and going out and being part of the solution. So we've signed up to build new infrastructure across the United States, one of which hits exactly what you were looking for. We announced a collaboration with Pilot Flying J and EVGO to build over 2,000 chargers at 500 different Pilot and Flying J locations on interstates, on major corridors across this country. What we are trying to do is help build out that coast-to-coast network and make sure that you as an EV driver have well-lit amenities available to you while you're charging. We just announced last week that we 
already have some of these sites up and running, and we're looking to get 25 running by the end of the year. So it's going to be huge once this network is complete, but it goes to show that you need to listen to your customer and make sure that you're building out that accessible, reliable charging. And put the chargers by Dairy Queens. That's my other request, Derek. Got to have a Dairy Queen and a charger. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Derek Sequera is the director of energy at GM uh, to uh, talk about some of the myths and some of the negative publicity that EVs have been getting recently. Derek, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. We are going to take a break. We are going to go back to politics right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There are a few things going on in the world of politics. Uh, We don't spend a lot of time sharing Donald Trump's deepest thoughts with you. But it did get a lot of attention when he was interviewed by Sean Hannity. And Sean Hannity said, because Sean Hannity loves to throw Trump the tough questions. So are you going to be a dictator? And Trump's response, well, maybe just on day one. Ha ha. Oh, if only it weren't true. It, uh, you know, even if it weren't true, it wouldn't be funny. And the fact of the matter is, If you look at everything Donald Trump says, it kind of seems like it is true. We're joined right now by political science professor William Muck. He's with, excuse me, North Central College in Naperville. He also co-hosts the Politics Lab podcast. William, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Joan, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. Was it uh, Toni Morrison who said when someone shows you who they are the first time you should believe them or something very similar to that. Um, and That's Donald a, Trump yes. has been telling us and telling us, you know, the first time I know there were people who felt that he was just blustery and that he couldn't be as bad as he sounded like he was going to be. And he would rise to the occasion once the gravity of the job came home. And none of that happened. Turned out exactly who he said he was going to be was who he was. And I think that that's exactly what we're seeing now. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. There was all this conversation. Remember, people talked about, do we take him literally or do we take him figuratively? I mean, I I get confused by all of that because I think Donald Trump has been incredibly consistent, not just during his term as president, but throughout his whole life. Right. He has authoritarian tendencies. uh, And what we are seeing is, is the real Donald Trump. And as we begin to contemplate what a second Donald Trump presidency looks like, we've got all sorts of evidence in front of us. And the last two weeks in particular have kind of been stunning because he and and his cohort are telling us exactly what he wants to do. And there are anti-democratic elements throughout all of that messaging. So it's 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 been rattling me a little bit. It's been rattling me quite a bit. Not that I think that in a just a straight off head to head contest, I think Joe Biden could handily defeat Donald Trump. But then you get RFK Jr., you get Cornell West, you get these no labels people who are Republicans who are too cowardly to take back their own party. And you know as well as I do that the Electoral College 
can be really squirrely. And I think it is absolutely within the realm of possibility that he gets elected to another term. And if the guy has said it's going to be retribution and vengeance, who wants to vote for that? <laughs> well, what's what's bizarre, Joan, is that there is a real audience for that, right? And because Trump is savvy about what his voters want to hear, and so I think so. You know, when he says he'll be a dictator for a day, most of us say, "Well, that's that's terrible. He shouldn't say that." Or most people laugh and say he's trying to own the libs. But what I think he's really what's really going on here is he's trying to normalize this kind of language. We've seen this in other times where he's normalized violence. Uh, he's normalized the term nationalism, right? So we now talk about Christian nationalist. He played a role in nationalizing that term. And I wouldn't be surprised if he continues to throw this out there surrounded by an argument to say that democracy isn't always the answer, right? You know, that if, if, if our enemy are vermin, we need to do whatever we can to save our country and we shouldn't be constrained by democratic rules. I mean, I think that this is sort of the beginning of that next wave where Trump sort of carries on this narrative to say that we shouldn't be too hung up on democracy. And again, again, that's just really, really dangerous sort of language. I think, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, he is, he has sort of been, well, he's been doing this for a long time. I mean, I can remember an old interview with Leslie Stahl where he told her that he said that, you know, she was asking him, this was real early on. She was asking him about fake news. And he was like, you know what? If somebody prints something I don't like, he said, I say it's fake news. I say it's fake news. And eventually I'm going to sow doubt. And people aren't going to necessarily pay as much attention to what was reported. I mean, the guy is, you know, he may not have been a, a real success in, in when he was a student, but this guy is, is like, he's got the sense of people and where their weaknesses are. Supposedly years, be, years earlier, like in, I don't know, 2014, when he was first flirting with the idea of a run for national office, he told people that if he because he'd always been a Democrat, he'd supported Democrats. He believed in, you know, all the things that Democrats stood for. But he he said to someone, if I if I ever run, I'm going to run as a Republican because they're stupid, like they'll elect anybody. Well, and he's he's awfully good at that messaging, right? So the simple populist, uh, simple solutions to complex problems, he's very good at that. And there, I can't tell you the number of times where he says something, and I go, I know that's not true, but then I find myself questioning, well, maybe he's right. You know, it sort of it sends you down these rabbit holes, and and that's the point, right? He's, he's he just throws lots and lots of ideas out there, and and he is completely disconnected from truth, but that's okay because he doesn't have to worry about that. And, and I mean, it's it's again, it's a very, very effective strategy. And that's what we're again, we're starting to see that come into uh, come clear a little bit what he's arguing and what a second term is going to look like. And it's it's not pretty. I mean, they're openly talking about creating camps to put migrants in camps. You know, we're talking about deportations of millions of people, right? They're being very clear about the kind of policies that they would pursue in a second term. Cash Patel, one of his, you know, sort of affiliates was talking about coming after journalists. They're saying the quiet part out loud um, and, and that's sort of shocking but also very, very revealing. As you said, we know who he is and he's been very consistent throughout his life. Okay, here's the part that confuses me. Obviously, you know, he has a, an almost a religious following among 
20 to 30 percent of the people in this country for whatever for whatever reason. But we can no longer say we don't know who he is or what he stands for. So why is it that more what I would consider more worldly, more reasonable people seem to think that he could still be their guy? I know with some with some Republican legislators, I think it's simply fear. They're afraid that if they oppose him in any way, shape or form, that they'll be primaried, they'll be run out of Dodge. And, you know, we have to acknowledge there is evidence for that. But regular folks, I mean, I know that at first time around, there were really rich people who saw a big fat tax cut coming their way and they really didn't care about anything else. But. Now they can look back and say, yeah, I got my tax cut, which, thank you, I still have. But, you know, he was really a crappy president and not good for the country, not good for politics. Why are those people still toying with him? I think to understand the appeal of Donald Trump, we have to think about identity politics. And again, he's very good on this front, specifically as we think about race and as we think about religion. And he has gone out there and what he does is he says, I will protect you, your country. And when he uses that language, it's clear who he's talking to, right? Uh, he's talking to white Christians who feel targeted. You know, so do you feel targeted for your race or do you feel targeted for your religion? He's the guy that's going to protect you. Um, and, it, and his language is very, very appealing. He's the guy who will fight for you. And even if he has these indiscretions, so even if, you know, you're a devout Christian and you realize that Donald Trump isn't the perfect Christian, he nevertheless is the guy that's going to protect you and is going to fight for you um, because he's so, you know, so, so intent on his language and he's not worried about getting pushed around. I think that goes a long way to, to understand the appeal of a Donald Trump. I think think about race and think about religion. That those identity dynamics. Um, he's anti diversity. You know, I, I think that really appeals to a large segment of the country, particularly white men of a certain age. I would think that that's an argument that, that resonates. Uh, I also read something recently that said that you know, white suburban women, you know, were some of the big determiners of Trump's victory or lack thereof, and that it was possible, according to some of the studies being done, that maybe Donald Trump was having some success getting them back in his camp. The person who was writing this was like, you know, guys, um, if you're a, a white woman, you really have to work on your friends because you can't ask black women to pull another election out of the fire for you. I mean, that really you just you just yeah. you just can't, you know, you got to do some of this on your own. Do you think that there is um, a movement amongst some back to Donald Trump of white women, there, suburban there, women, college educated? That's a really women? interesting Right. It's an interesting question. We've already seen a bit of movement uh, among blacks, right? So Trump is doing better uh, with black and Hispanic voters. Um, again, we're still talking about minor amounts, but when you've got a close election, any type of movement is is telling. Now, I haven't seen real good polling suggesting that white suburban women are moving back to Trump. And I guess I would be a little skeptical of that. Largely anecdotal. I live in a white, rich, affluent suburb, you know, that is Naperville. And um, so I don't see a lot of that, but it 
is entirely possible. And anytime you have a close election, that's what's going to matter. And I think the other thing to think about here is that, you know, the economy is still driving a lot of voter perceptions. So for the, the non-hardcore Trump supporters, that sort of, you know, middle group that is, I guess, the increasingly small group of undecided people, the economy is important. Um, and I think that is still shaping perceptions and this perception that the economy isn't as good as it should be could, could shape some suburban voters. But, but I still tend to think that white suburban women are, are, you know, find Donald Trump detestable overwhelmingly. I think, I think that's going to hold. But, but again, it's hard to know in this political world. Yeah. Strange and getting stranger. I'm talking to political science professor William Muck. He co-hosts a podcast called Politics Lab. We're going to take a break and we're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by political science professor William Muck. He teaches at North Central College in Naperville and we are talking politics. William, are you on social media? You know, I, I used to love Twitter. It was my favorite place, Joan, because you could be, you know, surrounded by all sorts of intellectuals and you could find, you know, writers all over around the world. Uh, and so I do have a Twitter or X account, but I've, Elon Musk is just so awful that it's been hard for me to stay, stay on Twitter. So I, I really don't do much on social media anymore. Yeah. I created a threads account and, like a lot of people who use it for news and information, it's it's taken a while to really get off the ground. But I think it's um, I think it's getting close to to critical mass now. I'm frankly, you know, I used to keep a tab open with Twitter while I was on the air, but mostly just in case somebody famous died, because it was like it would get posted <laughs> on Twitter like two hours before it was anywhere else. And of course, you know, if somebody croaks, you want to be the first to uh, share that news. <laughs> but um, it's Elon Musk is getting a lot of attention. He originally banned Alex Jones, he of InfoWars, the man who said that the um, mass murder of small children at Sandy Hook was um, it was a fake. It was staged. Um, and Elon Musk at the time put out a statement that, you know, that his his chi- his first child died in his arms as a baby. And anybody who could use a child's death to try to draw attention to themselves was just reprehensible beyond words. And now, since uh, Elon is losing a lot of his mainstream advertisers, I think Elon's thinking, well, you know, if I can't keep the mainstream, maybe I'll go really hard right and get some advertisers that way. Because now uh, he has reinstated Alex Jones to his ex account. And he now he's saying, well, it's a free speech. You know, we're either about free speech or we're not. You know, I uh, don't want to be a hypocrite here. <laughs> Doesn't want to be a hypocrite. So uh, putting uh, Alex Jones back on Twitter, um, I think that. I think that this is simply a way to try to figure out how the hell he can sell some ads on this on this platform. And of the Linda, what is her name? Linda Yacaro, who uh, came over to be his CEO because she supposedly had such a great um, great deal of experience with, you know, ads and, you know, getting advertisers and corporate support. 
this woman must be ready to throw herself out of a window. <laughs> I just I just can't imagine that she wakes up every morning and goes, yeah, I'm so glad I made this career change. It's working out for me in so many ways. Um, I mean, it's like a it's like watching a car crash. It, it really is awful. And I think about the loss. Those of us who have been on Twitter or X for a long period of time remember what it was when it was at its best, where, like you said, you could get information more quickly than any place else. You could follow interesting people all over the world. You could be part of conversations. You know, I, I think about when Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, the place I was at was Twitter because that's where I could get the most up to date, interesting information for, from experts who are on the ground. It was such a valuable tool. And you mentioned free speech, right? I think as the country grapples with how we want to have speech, who gets to say what, where do we say it? I mean, Twitter was a was a really valuable mechanism for having conversations as an entire country. And as it has gone away in terms of what it once was, I, I think the country is left in in a worse place for having real conversation. So I know I think it's, it's, it's a tragedy and Elon Musk seems to just revel in burning it all down. I, I honestly, I like at a, at a personal level, I don't know what's going on there, but, um, it, it is, it is, it is too bad, right? And we're having lots of conversations across the country about free speech. And I think part of losing, losing Twitter is part of that, that problem. I know that free speech is, does not mean you can say anything anywhere, anytime. Um, but the whole idea of free speech came to a crisis point in a congressional hearing recently, as you well know, with a lot of Ivy League, um, a lot of Ivy League CEOs, Harvard, Penn. And one of the Congress people, I think it was Elise Stefanik, said, well, you know, does your code of conduct um, prohibit calling for the genocide of the Jewish people, which I thought. Does your code of conduct say that, you know, you can't murder people in Target? Does your code of conduct say that you can't run naked through the campus? I mean, there's a lot of things that would be in a code of conduct that that would, you know, be applicable to everyday college life. But there's a lot of things that wouldn't be. And I think that was a I feel so bad. I think that was a real no win question to ask those people. And now uh, the woman who heads up Penn has indeed resigned as an academic. What do you think about watching that? And what do you think about what happened? It was it was uncomfortable because when you heard them answering the questions, you knew that you knew these were gotcha questions, right? So you knew that Elise Stefanik was going in there. Uh, and I will say, you know, the, the college presidents didn't answer them the way they probably should have, right? They're questions that uh, take a lot of nuance and explanation, and a congressional hearing isn't a place for nuance. Uh, and I think their follow-up statements were stronger than what they said in front of the congressional testimony. But, you know, I think in general, we want to air on the side of free speech. Now, I think the question that they were asking is what about genocide and targeting particular groups? And and I think, again, that requires a nuanced answer that they didn't provide in that space. But I, again, I do feel for them because what they're trying to do is defend the idea that we want free and open discussions and we want the college campus to be a place where we can have hard and meaningful conversations, but that are also respectful, right? And I think that was the, you know, the, I think what their answer lost there was the, the idea that anti 
anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, um, you know, anti-racism, that we have to be aware of a lot of these issues going on. And that can be part of our conversation about what is free speech and where do we draw the lines. And I'm sure if we'd given them an hour to sort of elaborate, they would have had a more thoughtful answer. Um, but again, you're seeing you're seeing politics drive the process and, and, and just kill any sense of nuance there. Yeah. And killing a career. And there's, um, I guess there was a letter signed by 500 of the um, either instructors or instructors emeritus at Harvard saying, don't push out the CEO. Um, Gay, I think her name is, is her last name. I forget her first name. But don't, don't do this. Don't push her out because of this. And... First of all, I thought to myself, you know, no offense to North Central College, but anytime you can get 500 instructors, assistant professors, (laughs) professors to sign any letter, you know, that's that's pretty amazing. Um, But they're hoping that doesn't happen to them. What do you think is fair? What do you how do you think it should be handled? You said you didn't think that they answered as well as they could have. Um, How could they have answered better? Well, the, so I think the, the better answer would have been to reiterate the importance of free speech and say that, you know, we are a campus that wants to have as much free speech as possible, but we also want to be attuned, uh, to hurtful language, right? And I think that there's, there's a line there to say, you know, we can allow free speech, but we don't want to tolerate hate speech. And it's, it's difficult to draw that line. And the way that Elise Stefanik was, was asking it is one that I think I similarly would have pushed back against because, you know, when you're talking more generally about genocidal genocide that's it's a loaded term and it's really really difficult um so i think i would have emphasized the need to think about and empathize with groups who are targeted but also trying to create a space where we can have productive language and free speech um and and i think airing always airing on the side of more speech but again being aware of those groups as well and now the, the problem with the college president is they're not just their job is not just to uh, create free speech but it's also to generate and raise money right and i think that's the real question here i think if they if they're forced out it's 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 because their answer is going to impact donations because at the end of the day colleges and universities are businesses and so if you upset you know a large mm-hmm. segment of those who are likely to give to you you've got to think about going elsewhere so i, but then I wouldn't that be surprised raises the other question do the donors get to decide what's what and what people say and what people do, because you're you're absolutely right. They're crucial. So that should they be the ones in the driver's seat? Should things be decided no. by their whims? <laughs> no, not at all. Right. You you want to have a little bit of spine, a little bit of backbone. Um, but and again, that's it. When you're talking about a place like Harvard, where you have, you know, the type of money coming in, it's it's a very different place than most colleges and universities. But what I, what I will say is that what we're seeing here is the divisiveness of this particular issue of of the war between Hamas and Israel. It is it is dividing college campuses. It is dividing the country in a way that I don't think President Biden fully anticipated or any of us really anticipated. Um, and I think that's that's what's leaking into all of this is these strong feelings, you know, and, and it's it's hard to always adjudicate those in, in productive ways in that kind of space. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, you know, this idea, again, that I think is really um, Elon Musk being an incredible hypocrite. I don't think he likes Alex Jones now any more than he liked Alex Jones before. But, you know, what was it? He paid 40 billion at the last valuation. Um, 
he had either lost 16 billion or it was now valued at 16 billion. Either way, huge, huge loss. Um, and you'd think if this guy is such a brilliant businessman, he would really figure out how to turn the ship around. And yet he keeps sailing farther and farther into the iceberg. Why do you think that is? Paul? Um, Professor, can you hear me? Did you hit a mute button? Are you, have you muted yourself? Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, so what do you think we should do, Paul? Do you want to disconnect and try to reconnect with him or what? <laughs> okay. Paul Shavari on the case. All right. Um, I do want to, as long as I have a minute or so before we have to throw it a break anyway, I do want to remind you that at 4.30, we're going to have our Ask an Attorney segment with Tony Moray. So um, text sure me. What happened? Oh, I don't know. Where did you go? Are you back? I guess I just disappeared, Joan. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, hang on one second. I just want to remind the audience, uh, 773-763-9278. Shoot me a text if you have a question for uh, Tony Moray. He's going to be here at 430. Yeah, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to people, I know you're not on your phone, but, you know, I use my face and then I, I use my face to sh my cheek to shut off the call. <laughs> and uh, did you do did you do something like that? You just went away. I, I must have. And the problem, Joan, I was in the middle of a really great answer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and while we were waiting, I was checking the text line and um, I was talking about how the University of uh, Pennsylvania fired their chief uh, officer. And uh, somebody texted in that the University of Penn donors pulled $100 million in donations. Now, I have not read a lot about this, so I can't. I can't verify that um, for 100 percent sure, but that ties right into your idea, you know, that, you know, you've as if you're the CEO, you can't afford to alienate those donors. Well, that that's right, and and you think about a business. So our you know colleges and universities, uh, they uh, tuition drives some of the budget, and then donations is the other part of it. And and so there's not a lot of extra, especially we're in an era of higher ed right now where there are fewer kids going to college, so budgets are tighter, and so everybody is really really anxious. So so donors have more power than they probably should at this point. Um, so yeah, everybody's everybody's really anxious, and I'm not surprising this surprised this is playing out in a really uncomfortable way for for those college presidents. Um, Professor William Muck and I are going to take a break so that you can hear the news. We will be back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. And I am rejoined by political science professor William Muck. He co-hosts a podcast called Politics Lab, and he is indeed a political science professor. Uh, I'm going to kind of throw a curveball to you, William, only because <laughs> sure. I know you can manage this. It had just occurred to me while we were listening to the news that I probably will not be talking to you again in 2023. 
So um, I'd like to get your look back and maybe your look forward as far as, I, you know, I mean, frankly, this would be really unfair if you did it to me because there has been so much going on that I've developed this like uh, over <laughs> um, overdeveloped short term memory, but at the cost of a long term memory. Like it's, you know, I can probably tell you what happened yesterday, maybe last month, but you go back six months, ah, I'd have to kind of look at my notes. Um, what was one thing that made an impression on you politically this last year? You know, I, as you were, as you mentioned that, I was thinking like, I was trying to think back through history as well. I'm like, did we have midterms this year? Midterm, it's an all sort of blends I together. Know. You know, I, the one thing that I... I think it's sort of uh, been stunning to me over the last year or so is the normalization of Donald Trump. And I know we started talking about Donald Trump, but, but if you think back to the, to the aftermath of the, the midterm elections where, you know, Republicans did poorly again, and it felt like that was a moment where the party was starting to create a little space. You know, we'd had the, uh, uh, the January 6th hearings, the midterm results, and it really felt like the party was beginning to create some some distance there. And then I think what we've seen over the last year is that pushed away and then the Republican Party getting squarely behind Donald Trump again. And it's hard to sort of remember that it wasn't that long ago when there was a real opportunity to distance and separate from Donald Trump. And and I think about I was looking at some of the polling this morning that shows him up 45, 46, 47 percent. And it didn't have to happen that way. And I think that's really been a not surprising, but curious development that over the course of the year, he's once again been able to reestablish his dominance of the Republican Party. And they came so close, you know, with with the second impeachment. If the Senate had just been willing to be a little bit brave, I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell made a big point of telling everybody he wasn't going to require them to vote yes or no. They could vote their conscience and supposedly privately, he was telling his colleagues that Donald Trump is a cancer and the Democrats have handed us the perfect opportunity to excise this cancer. Had they voted to expel him, he could have never run for national office again and they wouldn't be where they are now. Um, but every time it seems like there's been an opportunity to do something that would either diminish him or get rid of him, everybody folds. I don't understand that. And I do wonder, years from now, when political scientists and historians are studying this, I think they will look back at this this little window from 2022 to 2024 to kind of understand, how did this happen again? How did somebody where, you know, during the course of his presidency and then after his presidency, you know, January 6th and all of that, how did he once again win over support? It's it's a really sort of fascinating question. And, you know, I, I yeah, I, I continue to sort of try to understand understand that and grapple with it. And I, I think what's likely to happen is unless he is removed by one of these legal proceedings, the Republic, you know, he's going to win the nomination and the Republican Party will once again get fully, fully behind him. Um, you know, Koch brothers and all, I think you're, you're going to see that funding and it will be an extraordinary development to, to think about somebody who carried out an insurrection against the country uh, is once again uh, the leader of a, of a major political party. It's just kind of stunning. In our history, 
Has there been something like this before? I mean, you know, I, I'm pulling up my yeah. my middle school history. I mean, Teapot Dome, I know that was a huge scandal at the time. Do we have something to look back on and say, oh, yeah, this was like the times we're going through now and this is how it turned out? You know, I, I don't, there's nothing exactly like, I mean, I, as you were talking, it made me think about some of the turmoil of the 1960s and, you know, the intensity against Nixon. And I think there were some similar feelings there, but nothing on the level that we're seeing right now. Um, I, I can't think of another president or former president that poses such a fundamental threat to democracy where it's clear that that threat is there yet has still been able to garner just dramatic support from the public. So, I think that's unique in, in history in the United States. But the one thing I will say is that we're seeing lots of Donald Trump's, Trump's around the world. You know, just recently there was an election in Argentina and they elected a, basically a populist Donald Trump, um, a Millet, this guy who uh, claims that his, his dead dog told him to run for office. Um, he has all sorts of outlandish theories, including like we should legalize the organ trade. Um, you know, so you see a, a Donald Trump in Argentina. We We've seen one in Brazil. Uh, the Netherlands recently had elections, and the top voter, vote getter, the top party, was this guy named Gilt Wilders, uh, who is also a, a Donald Trump lookalike. And so I think it's something that the United States is grappling with. But this is a problem that we're seeing play out around the world. These sort of right wing populists are are proving to be very, very popular. Well, that's not uh, what I wanted to hear from you. I wanted to, I wanted you to say, well, as a matter of fact, Joan, let me give you a perfect example. And it turned out OK. Uh, <laughs> this, so we've had corruption before. We've had scandals before, but not not people who wanted to get rid of our political system. I would imagine when we look back at the scandals, there was money involved, maybe bribery. There might have been sex scandals but nobody in our past, perhaps look until we look back to the Civil War, who wanted to really completely change our government. That's right. Who has such a deeply anti-democratic streak to them. And, and I think that's, again, what is unique about Donald Trump is that, you know, he really is this unique mix of authoritarianism and, and fascism. And I know fascism is a, is a problematic term and it, it doesn't fit Trump exactly. But, but when you have candidates who are using terms like vermin to describe their opponents and, and talking about immigrants poisoning the blood of the country, you know, I, I think that, that is sort Sort of the sort of fascist language that we've seen in the past, and and then Trump's tendency to want to monopolize power. That those are the more authoritarian elements. So so I can't think of another figure. You're right. Post post Civil War that poses such a fundamental threat to democracy. Um, so it is it is it's scary times, and, and I think we've all gotten used to it, and we sort of normalized all of this. Uh, but it's important that we sort of recognize the uniqueness of the moment and what's happened in this last year in terms of the the normalization of Donald Trump once again. Yeah, we need to take a break. Um, Professor William Muck and I are going to look forward to a 2024. Yeah, there's going to be a presidential election in case you've forgotten. Uh, we're going to talk about where we see this country going. We've talked a little bit about what's happened in the last year. Now we're going to look forward when we come right back after this. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Professor William Muck. He is a political science professor at North Central College in Naperville, a lovely community. He is also co-host of a podcast called Politics Lab. And uh, we were talking about what we have lived through. And uh, I'd like some predictions for 2024, William. No, All right. no, pressure. Well, I, no pressure. No pressure. Just, you know, I'm going to record them. I'm going to write them down and I may <laughs> confront you with them down the road. It's OK. I should say. I should say, Joan, political scientists are very good at explaining things that have happened. We're really not particularly good at explaining uh, at prediction, but, but I will, let's start domestically and let's think about the 2024 presidential election. And if we just look at sort of the math and the way things are breaking out in the history, I think it is likely that Democrats, uh, win back the House of Representatives. Uh, I think it's even possible they hold on to the Senate and I think the presidency. So if we're thinking about, you know, um, where things are going Democrats, versus Republican, I think 2024 is likely to be a very good year for Democrats. And and the reason I say that is, is Donald Trump. Um, and if we think about the impact uh, that he has had over the last few elections, the impact he's had in a lot of those uh, toss-up states, um, you know, I think the math is going to be against Republicans as long as Donald Trump is around. So, so I think there may be some good news for Democrats in 2024. And do you think that We've seen young people coming out the last few elections ever since Roe v. Wade really uh, fell and people started experiencing those kinds of restrictions of rights that they'd grown up with. It seems to have awakened the uh, political desires of a younger demographic. Do you think that trend will uh, level off or continue to grow in 2024? Well, if the Democrats are smart, they will continue to raise that issue, and I think it's going to be a strong one. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. I see this on college campuses, but I see this across the spectrum. Right? This is an issue you see it over and over again, even in red states. You know, abortion is a, is a popular policy for the Democrats. So I think if, if Democrats are smart in terms of what they make the 2024 presidential about, they will raise that issue: women's health, abortion rights. I mean, I think this is something that is is a powerful issue that in some ways transcends politics. So, so, and again, I hope for a, for a whole host of reasons that young people uh, continue to show up to vote. I mean, that's not always the case, but um, I think there's a couple reasons why they may want to do so. And I think if we're thinking about predictions, I, the other thing I would think for 2024, I think it's a, it's a good year for some very, very serious climate uh, legislation. Um, I think, you know, this last year, one of the things that we've realized is climate change isn't years or decades away. It's something we're feeling immediately. And I get the sense, especially about among young people, that they want to see things move more quickly. So it does feel like we're finally at a, a point where we could see another wave of really uh, serious and significant climate legislation. So I, I, I think that's possible in 2024 as well. It seems to me that that's, um, I, well, understandably, it's a huge issue with young people who are actually going to be living decades and decades with whatever climate disasters we have we have created. Um, I was kind of surprised initially, you know, there was just that recent big world conference on climate change. And initially, the White House was not going to 
not only not going to attend, but not going to send anybody there. And I know that they got a lot of blowback for that. And all of a sudden, you know, the Kamala Harris was put on a plane and off she went. Um, it seems to me that the older generation doesn't find that to be a particularly um, hot button issue the way a younger demographic does. What do your it, students it, say so- to you? Well, what's interesting about that, and you're, you're spot on there, Joan, right? Uh, my students, whether they're liberal or conservative, the, the climate is uh, environmental degradation is, is an important issue for them. Uh, and there is frustration with a lot of inactivity about this. And they will openly say that, you know, one of the things they talk about is their frustration with older politicians, not just because they're older, but because they're not as, as thoughtful about the long-term implications of climate change. So no, I think that that may be the number one issue the world faces over the next 25 to 50 years. I mean, there's a lot of international issues, but climate is likely to dominate our politics, both international and domestically, in a way that we can't really imagine yet. So, so, but yes, young people get that. They very much are aware of that. What do some of the, what are some of the other things that um, the other uh, opinions and stances that your students share with you about uh, the world, the politics of the world we're in? You know, I think they're, this is a, it's a great question. And it's interesting what they're interested in, what they're not interested in. And I will say the Israeli-Palestinian issue has really touched them in a way really? that I didn't anticipate. Yes. Um, and, and in a divided way, right? I mean, so I think there's a lot of contention about that. There are, there are like pro-Palestinian perspectives. There are pro-Jewish perspectives. Um, and there's a desire, at least at the, in the college campus to have some conversations about that. They're not always pretty conversations. Uh, but that was something that I didn't realize how uh, impactful that was for so many of, of college-age students. Yeah, I, well, with the, with the protests that, er, that erupted, um, I think we all saw that this was uh, something that, whether or not they had all the information, what information yeah. they had, they cared deeply about. Um, one thing that I will say, and I think you and I have talked about this before, one thing that did disappoint me was it seemed that a lot of people, not just students, um, couldn't. Were you earlier? You were talking about a nuanced answer. It seemed to me that a lot of people were incapable of bringing any kind of nuance to the Middle East and what they thought was going on in the Middle East and who they thought was responsible and what was good and what was bad. I thought that there was an incredible lack of nuance in a lot of the, in a lot of the statements that I heard and a lot of the, the protests that I, that I saw. And you know, the current misinformation, disinformation world we live in didn't help. Somebody posted a video of a young woman in London who was taking down uh, pieces of paper that had been printed out with the faces and names of the hostages Hamas had taken. And this was shortly after the whole thing blew up. And the person behind the, the video is saying to this woman, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And she turned around and she goes, this is all fake. It's all fake. Mm-hmm. These people aren't being held. It's all fake. And I'm, you know, I'm like, oh, I just wanted to beat my head against the table when I saw that. 
it, it's really hard, right? And I, I will say it's hard to have these conversations sometimes. I think they're really, really important. And yeah, yeah, we've talked about this before. So much as, you know, whose story are you telling and when do you begin that story? And, and I think what we see is, you know, both sides in this, in this issue have powerful stories to tell and, and they want to tell particular stories of, of suffering and pain and, um, oftentimes talking past each other. And, um, you know, one of the things that we see on college campuses is there's, there's oftentimes, uh, a sympathy for the Palestinian cause. And I think there's some interesting explanations for that. College campuses are very much connected with the Black Lives Matter movement. And there are some really interesting connections between pro-Palestinian views and Black Lives Matter, sort of this issue of oppression and colonialism. Um, and, and so some of those things are just getting worked out. And again, they don't always uh, express themselves in productive ways. Um, but at a macro level, I really, I have been surprised how much students want to talk about this. And and again, I think to your point, they don't always understand the details and the nuance, and that's why I think the conversation is important. Yeah, it uh, it absolutely is. When I look at twenty twenty four, I I hope what you have predicted comes true. I think that as you know, when Republicans continue to hold these really far right positions. When we see a pregnant woman in Texas having to leave the state because Ken Paxton won't let her have an abortion, um, you know, it's like it's like the party that keeps shooting itself in the foot. I mean, Nikki Haley kind of tried. Well, Nikki Haley, who's trying desperately not to alienate the Trump people while still getting uh, people who aren't Trumpers saying things like, well, you know, we do need to have a more nuanced, you know, a more layered uh, laws about abortion, whatever the heck that means. And I don't really know <laughs> what that means. But I think that it, Republicans, I don't know if they can't stop themselves or if their worldview is just so all encompassing to themselves that they can't really understand how out of step they are with the majority of Americans. But if Republicans continue to be really far right and take all these really radical, basically anti-human positions, I think, I think that there could be, um, I think there could be a watershed moment in 2024. Now, I know with misinformation and disinformation and third party candidates that the whole thing is going to be a lot messier and a lot muddier than we otherwise would have it. But I I have hope. I have hope that if the Republicans don't one day wake up and go, oh, my God, we have to stop saying this. It's wildly unpopular. Um, I I think that um, they could lose their shirts in the next election. That's that's my prediction. I don't know if you want to hold me to it. No, yeah, I'll write it down, Joe. No, I, I think you're you're absolutely right about the party. And I've said this before, there has to be a reckoning within the Republican Party before it's going to be a really viable long-term party. And and part of that is getting rid of sort of Trumpism, the anti-democratic, the authoritarian, the the nativist perspectives, and get back to a more traditional conservative worldview. And until they do that, I just think a lot of the sort of middle America is going to be turned off uh, by that perspective. At least that's my hope, right? And I think we've yeah. seen that in the past few elections. Well, William Muck, I hope you have a wonderful holiday and a wonderful New Year's celebration, whatever it might be. And um, I will 
Unless, of course, the world burns down and I drag you back on the radio next week, which is always a possibility. I will see you in the new year. Thank you so much, Joan. Happy holidays to you as well. Happy holidays. Uh, We are going to be taking a break. And when we come back, we are going to be doing what is now going to be a regular segment. Ask an attorney. Our very own Tony Moray is going to be here and he is going to take your questions. We'll probably start with the questions we didn't get to from the last time he was on. But, you know, whenever I'm interviewing somebody and you're invited to ask them a question, one of the things that I find happens over and over again is that kind of takes people a while to either figure out what they want to say or to, to dial in. And suddenly in the, literally in the last 90 seconds of the interview, I got five people who want to know something. Well, think about it right now because Tony's going to be here when we come right back after a break and we are going to ask him your questions right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is our regular sponsored segment, Ask an Attorney. Our very own Tony Moray is uh, very graciously here today to answer your questions. Uh, You can call us if you want to talk to Tony on the radio at 773-763-763. 9278-773-763-9278. If you've never called, remember it this way, 773-763-WCPT. Tony, welcome. How are you? Joan, I'm great. Thank you once again for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, you are very welcome. Last time you were here, in the final seconds of our segment, all of a sudden I was inundated with uh, texts and questions. And um, I've tried, you know, that it happens all the time. It just sort of takes people a while to get around to doing it. Um, So I'm going to start with um, some of the things that uh, were sent in before. I know you were talking about um, you were talking about wills and estates and um, we were talking about, you know, uh, explain again what being the executor means. Um, the executor is the person that someone names in their will to be in charge, if you will, of the distribution of the assets that they own upon their passing. Mm-hmm. Now, this, this is somebody named either in their will or if someone doesn't have a document, there's no will, then the family members would actually go to court, probate court, and petition the judge to be named executor by the judge. So the court then makes a determination as to who would be the fit and proper person mm-hmm. to take that estate through probate. So I see. Because one of the texts we got before uh, said, I'm executor of my father's estate. The estate <laughs> was to be split between myself, my brother, and my sister. My sister refuses to cash her check. What can I do? I assume that means that the estate isn't like closed until everybody cashes their check. I don't know what what kind of um, what kind of um, problems Recourse. would that create? Yeah. 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 Let's let's say for sake of argument that the estate's not been closed. Okay. And there are probably let's call them quote unquote family problems. Uh, why this person wouldn't cash a check? Most of us, most of us like to cash checks we get, right? So yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's so 
it's unusual, but the recourse that person would have, whether the estate is still open or even if it's been closed, is to go back to probate court in front of the judge who's either administering the open estate or administered the estate that's been closed and petition the judge to create an order to order this person to cash the check. So that's a court order. It would be difficult for this person, whatever the reason might be that she's not cashing the check, to defy the court order. Nobody wants to be in that position. I I didn't realize that something like that was even possible. You can go to court to make somebody cash a check? Well, it, within the context of a probate estate, let's, let's again you know, imagine the facts are that this is a family issue. There's you know, a number of heirs, maybe they're children, maybe they're other relatives, and they've all been uh, determined by the probate court to be uh, uh, entrusted with a percentage of the estate. And the executor's job would be to write checks to all those people for whatever amount as part of the winding up of the estate. And the estate itself can't be closed until that money has been distributed. That's the problem. Oh, um, so, but it doesn't affect his check or his brother's check, right? If they've cashed them, they no. still get the money? No, no, it, it, it doesn't. But um, now I say the judge would issue an order. I, I, I can't, of course, you know, state categorically in any certain circumstance that the judge would place that order. But that's the executor's recourse is to go to the judge and explain this and say, you know, I I can't close the estate. All the money's not been distributed. Judge, what can I do? So, Mm -hmm. Well, that sort of ties in. Now, is is there a, a position called an administrator or is that just another word for executor? It's really just another word for okay. executor. There, it, it, in some complicated estates, a judge may appoint somebody who would be known as an administrator. If there are complicated business matters, uh, maybe there's a corporation involved, a lot of property, an estate that's not going to be closed within a reasonable period of time. Some other estates do call it administrator instead of executor, but it's really just a, a difference in terminology more than mm-hmm. anything else. Because uh, uh, someone named Joe texted in, I'm go- we were talking about problems with probate. I'm going through this right now. I'm administrator in probate. There are eight kids. Mm-hmm. It's like herding cats. <laughs> and that's a good example of why I don't, I don't urge clients to create a trust instead of a will. That's their decision. My job is to describe the differences between an estate wound up with a will or an estate wound up with a trust. But uh, oftentimes in probate, where there are numerous heirs or beneficiaries of that estate, um, uh, there, there are eight kids. It's hard to get eight people to agree on anything, right? Much less maybe eight siblings. Whereas if there's a trust and it doesn't go through probate, the successor trustee has the authority without, without going through probate court to wind up that estate in really pretty short order. There's paperwork involved, but it's something that can be done pretty quickly. This this has just occurred to me. Tony, like in the movies or television shows, when there's a will to be read, do you ever like call all the heirs to your office and everybody sits around and then you read the will and everybody learns what they what they got and what they didn't? Is that just something that happens on television or does it ever happen in real life? Uh, well, I can't say that it never happens in real life, but it's it's really a, it's really a, a great television scene more than anything else. 
spouse. Okay. Does that mean that does that mean that there aren't times where family members want to come into the office to discuss the estate? Sure, mm-hmm. of course they do, uh, and that's fine. But there's not generally a reading ceremony, if you will, like we've all seen in TV shows and movies. <laughs> or the, where you play the video and the person looks out and goes, you, you're all here and now I'm dead. And well, always... I, won't say that, I, I won't say that oftentimes there isn't drama with the winding up of the state. Obviously, there's oftentimes drama. Um, and if you go to probate court, if you, if, you, if you need something to do, you can spend a day in probate court and you'll see some pretty amazing things. Really? Um, oh, sure. Of course. Yeah, of course. Probate, probate court is a place where generally family members act out issues they've had with other family members involved in the estate that they haven't been able to, let's say, reconcile during life. The problem with probate court is it's a really expensive place to do that disagreeing. Really expensive. Yeah. yeah and that it eats up some of the estate. Well, it, it does in the sense that there's court time involved. Uh, let's let's take the example of, of the fellow Joe that, that texted into you. Eight children. Now, would each which, would each of the eight have their own attorney? Maybe not, but there probably would be other attorneys involved. And um, let's say that the attorneys are experienced and well-meaning. Uh, they're doing the job, and they're representing their clients, and their clients are telling them, "Hey, I want to I want to fight this, whatever this is, whatever the issue might be," and. Um, I've had probate estates that have lasted for three or four years. Wow. Um, Tony, we, we just got a text in, and I'm not, sh- I, I'm not sure what this person is referencing, but I'm guessing that you will. Um, okay. Is a POA for property necessary for both husband or wife if there are no dependents? Um, I don't know what a POA is. Yeah, it, it's, it's a power of attorney. Oh, I uh, see. Illinois, Illinois, in their Illinois statutes and the law in Illinois, there are documents called they're called durable powers of attorney. Durable meaning they survive a disability, and a durable power of attorney they're not connected to the will or a trust directly, but they're used during someone's life. So, if I have a power of attorney, which I've given to my wife, if I have a health issue and I can't make healthcare decisions. My wife has the legal authority to act for me and talk to my treating physician. Mm-hmm. There's also a durable power of attorney for property. Again, if I'm disabled, my wife has the authority to, to sign my name, literally, to make financial decisions that I'm unable to due to my disability. Now, they perform different functions. The power of attorney for property is really critical in the sense that if I'm disabled for a long period of time, if I haven't given my wife that power of attorney to act for me, she'd actually have to go to court to be appointed my guardian. Now, uh, you don't want to do that. Nobody wants to go through that. I've done that for clients. There was no power of attorney, and the husband or wife is disabled for a lengthy period of time, which we all know can happen. Uh, Without the power of attorney, you may have to go to court to be appointed your spouse's guardian or a sibling. It it, it Mm -hmm. doesn't even have to be a, a, a spouse. So, uh, POA's power of attorney are a really, really important component of an estate plan, if you will. You know, I've heard of a legal power of attorney. I've heard of a power of attorney for medical decisions. I've never heard of a power of attorney for property. I mean, is do you yeah. only have something like this if you have, like, 
lots of property if you just have a house? Nope. Is this still something no, you'd recommend? No, it, I, I, I recommend it for, for everyone, actually. It has nothing to do with the size of your estate or your assets, if you will. Um, if, if, you know, let's say people with a, a modest estate, let's say they're retired, they have some savings, money markets, maybe a mutual fund, other things, they have a home. What if somebody is disabled for a lengthy period of time and they decide to sell the house? The house, if it's in both their names, can't be sold without either one, having that power of attorney for property, or two, going to court to be appointed guardian of your spouse so you can sign for him or her. It, it, you know, these are, these are really, really important documents to have um, as, again, a, an important part of a, of a comprehensive estate, whether the estate is uh, using a will or using a trust or whatever it is. And even if somebody doesn't want to have a will, that's their choice. I urge them to have these powers of attorney um, in any case. So I have a will that says, you know, if I die, my kids inherit the house. But what if mm-hmm. I don't die? What if I'm, you know, God forbid, in an accident and I end up in a long-term care facility and mm-hmm. without a pro- power of attorney for property, does my house just sit there? Well, in, in that case, uh, your child or one of your children would go to court, identify themselves as your, your children, of course. Uh, there'd be a doctor medical certification of your disability and then the judge would be asked to uh, point one of your children or your children together in whatever they chose to ask to be appointed legal guardian. Um, and so there is a recourse if there are no documents in place. But, you know, if, rather than having one's children have to go to court and go through this process, which takes a period of time, and they investigate the family situation, the, the judge has an obligation to do that, to make mm-hmm. sure the proper people are asking to be someone's guardian. Um, all those issues can be sidestepped by having this really direct, fairly clear form signed and notarized. But again, the documents are in the Illinois statute. So it's not something I created or some other attorneys created, but they're very clear, and it's, it's a very simple process to to draft them and put them in place and have them signed. Okay. I'm speaking with Tony Moray. It is our Ask an Attorney segment. You can also text in a question. We're going to be talking um, at least up until it's time to introduce Patty Vasquez to the airwaves. So uh, 773-763-9278. And, uh, Tony, when we come back, I uh, still have a couple of things left over from last time I have to ask you. We'll be back right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is our regularly sponsored Ask an Attorney segment with Tony Moray. Uh, this is one of the texts we didn't get to from last time. It is from Larry from Wheeling. So, Larry, if you're listening, this is for you. Uh, hi, Joan. Wills are one issue. Trusts are the other. It would be valuable for us listeners to hear Tony's top reasons to create a trust. Okay, take it away, Tony. Your top reasons for creating <laughs> a trust. There we go. <laughs> my, my top ten list. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think most people understand that, that having a trust as opposed to a will allows your estate to avoid probate. You know, we've, we've talked about that. It's, it's, uh, 
it's the issue that is talked about, it, you know, in the popular press. If you read magazine articles about estate planning, avoiding probate is, is something that, Joan, I'd say probably 80 to 90 percent of my clients, when I explain the differences between having a will versus having a trust, most people are selecting a trust because it makes things easier for their for their family when they pass away. And that sort of links into one real advantage of a trust that probably isn't talked about all the time, but that's organization. And organization, I mean, when a trust is created, your major assets are transferred into the trust. Let's say Bob and Mary have a money market account. That money market account, once the trust document is signed, the name of the account is changed from their joint names to the name of their trust. Now, they still have the ability to control that that account in, in any way they can before they have a trust, but it puts it under the umbrella of the trust. So all their assets, their major assets, are put into or controlled by their trust. Um, you know, most people are organized with their finances and their investments and whatnot, but I had a client fairly recently who had a very, very large retirement account. He worked for a large corporation and we were going through this process. He called me up one day. He said, I'm a little embarrassed, but I, I have to tell you that going through this process has been really positive. My retirement account at work, my major retirement account had no beneficiary names. <gasps> oh now, my. that's not typical. That's not typical. Now, the, the, the account still would have gone to his wife or his children, but it would have not been as easy, right? Mm -hmm. And going through estate planning, whether it's a will or a trust that's created, is a time for people to look at their accounts, to see what beneficiary designations are there, to make sure the ownership account is correct. It's, and so the organizational process of doing any kind of estate, but particularly in a state with a trust, is, is really, really meaningful. It's a, doing your estate plan is a really good time to take stock of where everything is and also to make sure that the people who are your heirs, your beneficiaries, know where things are. They know where account statements are. They know where things are being kept. Um, a lot of people like to keep things in a safe place, quote-unquote safe place, but sometimes they don't tell people where that safe place is. <laughs> Secret safe place. Well, it, it happens all the time. And, you know, we understand people, you know, people like to keep things close, you know, some people. And we, we get that. It's their business. But the thing about the thing about death or passing away is nobody knows when it's going to happen. And hopefully it happens much later than sooner. But, but we don't know that. And it, it, it's taking care of your family to take care of them knowing where things are. You don't have yeah. to share every detail. You don't have to tell them what every penny is or exactly what your net worth might be. But knowing where to find things is really, really important. And particularly with the trust, that's an advantage that just isn't talked about that much. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. My mom had uh, cancer. And so, you know, she mm -hmm. knew that her days were limited. And every time uh, I went to visit her. She had this one like accordion file and she's like, I just mm -hmm. want to show you this again. This would slot is for insurance. This slot is for this. This slot is for that. And, you know, even with all of that and even knowing that she had cancer and her days were limited, I was mm -hmm. still, you know, I'm an only child and I was still I still felt like there were, you know, 
there were papers I didn't know what to do with. There were things I didn't know where they were. I mean, even with all of that, I was mm-hmm. I was still so flustered by her death that it was really hard. I mean, she made it, she got it as organized as a person could be, and it was still difficult. I can't imagine what it would have been like if it had just been papers here, papers there, and no organization, no nothing. I don't think I would have survived. Yeah, yeah it, it's such, clearly, it's such an emotional time when, when someone's, you know, parent or parents pass away. To, to have to deal with not knowing where anything is or not knowing what anything is in terms of somebody's assets. I, you know, I, 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 after doing this for many years, I just think it's not fair in a way for people Mm -hmm. not to tell their children, especially their adult children, where things are and and what's there. It's just, it's an act of kindness. I think really, it really is. You know, uh, speaking along these lines, I told you I was shocked when I heard the most recent spot you've got airing on WCPT mm-hmm. where you said, you know, around the holidays, around December, that this is your busiest time of the year. I would have thought that people wanted to think about anything but life planning. Why do you think this is a busy time of year for you? I, I think, Joan, you know, again, I've been I've been doing this for, you know, for over 35 years. And, you know, some of the stories I hear are apocryphal, and everybody doesn't say the same thing, certainly. But, you know, the end of the year, the holidays, you know, as I say in my head, people are gathering together. They're getting together. And it makes them, makes them think about their family. It makes them think about taking care of their family. And um, estate planning is just something that is really hard for people to, to just want to get down to do. You know, I'm asked oftentimes, When's the best time to do an estate plan? And and, and I'm I'm not I'm not being facetious when I say it's today, it's now. Yeah. You know w- what other time would be better? So I think the holidays, people get together with their family, whatever their family situation is. Even for people who maybe don't even have children, but they've got relatives they would like to benefit from an estate if if and when they pass away. It's just I, it, it seems counterintuitive, but I think that's why. You know, I, I think because of the gathering of people getting together and thinking about these issues, um, it, it makes people realize that they have that responsibility. Mm-hmm. That's my best answer. I, I, I it, it's hard to it's hard to, to burrow in there and really know the exact reason why. But um, but I, I think that has a lot to do with it. Well, I think I did my first will when I was in my 30s and I really mm-hmm. was kind of freaked out about it. Because it, you know, I mean, I didn't, I, you don't want to think about dying. And and it, it was, no. it felt like it was almost bad luck. And I kind of had to force myself to do it. But I have to tell you, Tony, after I did it, I felt such a sense of relief. It really mm-hmm. shocked me how good I felt knowing that I had, you know, done something to plan for um, those I leave behind. It really was it was like a, a breath of fresh air. I was really shocked that I felt that way. Yeah. And, and you had been thinking for a number of years about doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Before and you I was, did it. And, and I, I kept putting it off like somehow it was a jinx, you know. Ooh, don't, no, don't want right. to have to do anything that has to do with death. 
And finally, I just made myself do it. Um, like, you know, it felt like about I was about excited as a, as having a colonoscopy. But for both of those things, you feel a lot better when it's done. I, I, I don't know that I've ever had a client contact me after we finished their estate plan and said, you know, I, I wish I hadn't done that. Yeah, you know, exactly. everybody feels the sense of everybody feels the sense of relief. And I, I, when I first meet with a client, I tell them, look, this is a no guilt zone. You know, mm-hmm. you wish you had done it sooner. We all do perhaps wish we'd not delayed doing certain things, but th- there's there's no guilt. We're going to do it now. It's going to get done. And my prediction, and you know, some clients I, I don't know well initially, and I say I think you're just going to feel terrific about doing this, and you're going to feel relieved too. Yeah going to feel a sense of relief absolutely tony um i still have a couple questions we'll save them for next time we are out of time right now okay time time goes goes fast fast. time goes fast when you're talking with tony murray um thank you so much for joining me (laughs) today and thank you for your support of all of our listeners uh i really appreciate it happy Happy holidays holidays to you too to you and all your listeners okay thank you uh, that's going to do it for Tony and me today. Uh, driving at home with Perry Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Stay safe, my friends. Have a great evening and good night. <laughs>